Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Ben, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That's right. It's October. Spooky month. How are you feeling? Uh, stressed. Oh no. It's fine. How are you? I'm okay for the most part yeah i got a lot going on but i feel good about it oh well that's good we have the results of our horror adjacent bonus episode movie for october and it's going to be on the adventures of ichabod crane and mr toad yeah i mean mostly it it's for the Ichabod crane part, right? The yeah, but the movie part. is all of it. Yes. So we got to watch all of it, Ben. Fair. As much fair. as I, you know, would love to skip Mr. Toad being a total ass. Yeah, I mean, they did do, I think, a thing in the 60s where they split them into two different shorter things for like TV. So we could just watch The Legend of Sleepy Hollow without the Mr. Toad stuff. But we're going to do it with the Mr. Toad stuff because I want. That's what everyone voted on. I want. I want listeners to hear how angry it gets you. I especially want like, I don't know, people who really love the wind in the willows uh, to hear how angry uh, Mr. Toad gets you. It's just a difference in what I find funny and enjoyable <laughs> to you engage with. Uh, no, it'll be fun. Um, so that will be our October's bonus episode is on. But of course, for spooky season, we have a whole chock full of fun, special material going up on our Patreon. So if you want to get in on that spooky content, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. But enough of a, a shameless plug. Ben, what are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today uh, we are watching Yatsia Kaiden from 1959, directed by Kenji Masumi. And it's it's been a trek to get here for me. Yeah, um, tell me. Yeah, so we were going to watch Kaiden Kagami Gifuchi, directed by Masaki Mori, um, but I was unable to find a watchable copy of it. It was on YouTube, and then the channel that had it up was taken down. Um, and I've been just unable to find any other copies of it. It was another horror film from Shintoho, uh, the studio that's been releasing Nabuo Nakagawa's horror films. Mm. Um, Masaki Mori, who directed it, had directed the 1956 version of Yatsuya Kaiden, which we have on the list. And it's a fairly typical, like, traditional Japanese ghost story with a soap opera-like collection of characters. There's a wronged woman who's killed and dumped into Kagami Pond, and then she returns as a ghost to haunt her killer by appearing and causing him to, like, hallucinate and, like, kill the wrong people because he sees the ghost. By all accounts, a fairly standard (laughs) B-movie of its type, you know? And very similar plot beats to Yatsuya Kairin. Right, but also very similar plot beats to Kaiden Kasami Gafuchi by Nobuo Nakagawa. Just like 
you know, these are familiar Japanese ghost story beats, really. Yeah. Um, so with that kind of unavailable to us, we move on to this week's film, uh, which also posed some difficulties for me because it took me a while to find subtitles for it. Um, the subtitles that we are watching with I found and have applied to the film and, and they seem fine, but there might be some like wonkiness here and there. You were telling me they were Hungarian subtitles? Yes. The only subtitles I could find available for this movie were Hungarian. So I translated them to English using Google Translate and I gave them like a skim read and they seem to have come out all right um, because, you know, <laughs> Google Translate wasn't having to translate on the fly. Sure. Um, but still, uh, if there's any like wonkiness, that's going to be why. Um, now, this is the very first color adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden, and it's in widescreen, too. Um, but it's certainly not, by any stretch, the first movie adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden. It's not even the first movie adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden that we've watched for this show. Yeah. Yatsia Kaiden has a long history. Um, so, as is your Sisyphean task, why don't you tell us about Yatsia Kaiden, Sarah. <laughs> well, if folks want the full story, they can go listen to our episode on the 1949 adaptation where I give like a pretty in-depth history of the play and, you know, Kabuki itself and that sort of thing. That is episode 153. But the original Yatsia Kaiden play was written by Suraya Naboku IV, who typically used um, supernatural and macabre elements to explore domestic themes and stories. He wrote around 120 plays, with 1825's Tokaido Yatsia Kaiden being one of his most popular. Now, Kabuki, if you aren't familiar, is uh, very melodramatic, has a, a flair for drama and theatrics and the performance part of theater and it was often performed as like a full day program with like there's like three different genres of kabuki and that different material would kind of be interchanged through the day um yatsuwa kaiden in particular was performed and intercut with another play called 47 ronin and they are both very long, so it was performed over two days. Yeah, so you got like half of 47 Ronin and then half of Yatsia Kaiden on day one, and then like the back half of both alternated on day two? Correct, um, but you would actually start with Yatsia Kaiden. Oh, okay. Um, and the reason that why that's particularly interesting is because Kaiden as a Japanese ghost story structure and format is very focused on karma. Mm. And people getting their comeuppance. And this play focuses on uh, a couple of Ronin getting their comeuppance because they're real douchebags. Whereas 47 Ronin on the other side is about these Ronin like being, you know, heroes in their own right and, yeah. you know, regaining their honor and that sort of thing. Yeah, they're getting revenge for their former master. Yes. So Yatsuwa Kaiden especially as like first being performed in 1825 being incredibly popular. It's been adapted many, many times, but there are specific like scenes and moments that 
have to be there. Mm. Um, things like a door with blood on it floating in the river, a guy going fishing, a woman brushing her hair. Like these are things that you need to have in any of your adaptations, but they can be remixed with different emphases. What leads you to those moments can change a little bit, but at the core, a lot of what Yatsuya Kaiden is are those moments. Yeah, I would say like every adaptation of Yatsuya Kaiden we've seen has like shifted up like the characters and the motivations and the like exactly how we get from A to B's quite a bit. We haven't seen anything that's like perfectly adapted the play yet, but there's always those key moments. Yeah. So in the original play, we follow a ronin whose name is Yemen, and he is married to Oiwa. Um, now, things are very complicated in the <laughs> original play. So as much as I've tried to condense for time and brevity, it is still a lot to go through. So Yemen is married to Oiwa, but she's unhappy. So her dad goes to Yemen to be like, hey, maybe you guys should divorce. Uh, Yemen doesn't like this and kills Oiwa's father in a rage. At that same time, a ronin named Nesuke is in love with Oiwa's sister, Asode, who works in a brothel. Um, Asode, her husband, Yomusichi, mocks Nesuke, and in a rage, um, Nesuke goes to kill you know, someone who kind of bumps into him in the night, uh, who ends up being his former master. Um, so Nesuke and Yemen basically team up with each other for alibis, as well as to be like, yeah, we're going to go get revenge on the people who killed my father-in-law, and my former master. Meanwhile, there's this other girl named Ume. She's the daughter of a rich family, and she loves Yemen, but she thinks she's not as pretty as Oiwa, so she sends poisonous face cream to Oiwa, which disfigures her, causes her to have um, disfigured face, lose her hair, that sort of thing. In order to divorce Oiwa, Yemen needs some kind of reason to divorce her. Uh, so he goes to the brothel owner and asks him to rape Oriwa uh, to give him a reason to ask for a divorce. So the brothel guy goes to do that, but then is overcome with sympathy for her disfigurement. In that sympathy, he holds up a mirror and Oriwa realizes Yemen's setup and basically grabs a, <laughs> I was about to say grabs a gun, grabs a sword to go and kill Yemen. But um, she and the brothel owner struggle uh, and she ends up getting killed herself and slitting her own throat. But Yemen now gets to be engaged to Ume. However, he is being haunted by Oriwa's vengeful ghost, leading him to basically kill Ume and her father on the wedding night, including the whole fucking family. Nasuke sees this and does try to blackmail Yemen, basically because he's looking for a document that would allow him to marry Asode, who is Oriwa's sister, to, you know, bring your, your memory back to it. It's at that moment that we get that intermission and cut to 47 Ronin. Um, for the second half of the play, Nasuke is trying to get with Asode, and Asode keeps, like, saying like, no, we can't, but not saying why. Her ex-husband at this point, Yomosichi, catches Asode and Nasuke together and accuses Asode of adultery. Uh, with that dishonor, she ends up killing herself, but not before telling Nasuke that actually they're siblings, and that's why she didn't want to bone down. And Nasuke, with that kind of guilt and shame and disgust over himself, uh, kills himself. 
Yemen, meanwhile, continues to be hunted by Oriwa and is wandering in the mountains, driven mad. And Yamosichi, who was Asode's husband, finds Yemen and basically kills him out of pity. And that's the end. Right. And I'm thinking of, like, the various adaptations we've seen and going, like, well, what about this part of the story? And then realizing, like, it's changed over the course of the adaptations. Yes, many things have changed so the first adaptation we saw was in 1949, and it was long. Yes. Uh, and even then, they had to leave stuff out because it's not a like two-day performance of a kabuki <laughs> play, you know? Yeah. So in this 1949 adaptation, it was directed by Kesuke Kinoshita, and it was kind of more of a like realistic drama um, rather than anything to do with supernatural elements. Um, basically, it's all in Gaiman's head. It's also very much toned down in terms of its theatrics. And my theory to that is um, by 1949, Kabuki had lost popularity due to politics going on in Japan. And so the story's adaptation kind of reflects this and focuses more on tragedy rather than a shock and spectacle. Here is the 1949's adaptation's plot. Mm-hmm. Um, notably, I want to point out that Oiwa and Asode, who are the sisters, are played by the same actress. Nasuke and Kohei are in jail, um, but they get out for uh, due to like foiling someone's escape plan. Um, so they get early release. And Kohei is like, okay, now that I'm out, I'm going to go find Oiwa because I'm like deeply in love with her. Uh, Oiwa has since married a guy named Yemen. Ume is here. She is the daughter of a rich family, and she gets rescued by Yemen for reasons I won't get into and basically falls in love with him. Nausuke is getting in with Ume's maid, Omaki, and together they conspire to try to get Ume and Yemen together. Uh, eventually, Yemen, who is kind of a fumbling, like, can't decide what to do kind of person, goes like, okay, I'll figure out a way to divorce Oiwa. Nausuke does give Yemen some poison, but he can't bring himself to use it. During an argument that... Yemen has with Oiwa, though, she falls face first into boiling water. Nasuke comes by with an ointment supposed to help heal, but it actually makes the disfigurement worse. Um, and ultimately, Yemen decides to give her the poison tea because he's like... He pities her. He pities her completely. And it's an excruciatingly painful death that she she experiences. Now, Nasuke is calming Yemen down after having done this. And Kohei, remember Kohei back in, from jail? He overhears and tries to, like, blackmail. Um, so he gets killed. So Yemen and Ome get together, but guilt plagues him. And he keeps thinking he sees and hears Oriwa following him around. Now, Asode, who is Oriwa's sister, finds out about the whole plan, and she's... Oiwa's twin. So she puts on some of her old clothes and goes and haunts Yemen a little bit. And in kind of the climax, Yemen also learns that Nausuke was the reason for Yemen being a masterless samurai in the first place because of like something that happened like seven years ago and led to all of the misfortune and poverty that he and Oiwa were in in the first place. And so <laughs> Yemen kills Nausuke and in that fight, the entire house gets uh, set on fire and Yemen sees Oriwa in the fire and basically just like accepts his fate 
gets burned up and his last words are, forgive me. Now, Nasuke's dead, um, but Ume and her family are alive and have escaped the fire. Ume, however, does have disfigurement from the burns. Um, and that's the, that's the 1949 adaptation. It's a good movie. I really liked it. Uh, ultimately, we determined it was not horror because um, the haunting, it was all kind of in, in Gaiman's head. It's, and it's it was very, very psychological. Like, yeah, and it also wasn't like very scary. Like the focus wasn't mm-hmm. on horror or being scared. It was about the tragedy yes. of everything. Yeah, it, it was more like in the same way that like Macbeth has witches in it, but like Macbeth is not a horror story. You know what I mean? Well, from some people's point of view. But uh, yeah, so if you want to hear more about the 1949 adaptation, you can listen to episode 153. Our second Yatsua Kaiden movie on the show was the 1956 adaptation. So seven years later, and this was done by Misaki Mori. If you want to hear more about that version, you can listen to episode 191. In the 1956 movie, we have a, a mom named Maki setting her son, Yemen up with Ume because she's from a rich family. But, oops, Yemen's already married to Oiwa. Turns out that marriage is because uh, Yemen killed, her, killed Oiwa's dad and married her out of guilt. Oiwa doesn't know about any of this. Nausuke was the only witness to the murder of Oiwa's dad, so he continually blackmails Yemen. Now, Nausuke and Maki con to try to get Yemen to dump Oiwa, and this will work out in Nausuke's favor because, hey, he'll have more money for me to blackmail him for, by getting a masseuse to rape her. And as an extra piece of, you know, bonus awful, Maki gets some poison for Oiwa. The poison takes effect just as Oiwa is fighting off her rapist, and the guy basically ends up spilling the plan. Oiwa, in a rage grabs a nearby razor to go and try to kill Yemen, and in the struggle with her rapist, she slits her own throat and dies. Now the rapist goes to Yemen for blackmail, and they kill him. The main theme in these stories is don't blackmail killers. Yeah. So Yemen and Ume get together, but Yemen is continually haunted, um, thinking he sees Oiwa, um, and uh, a lot of the haunting is like blood in the wall and and like spooky like lights and, and apparitions. And particularly, Oiwa, her apparition appearing where Ume is standing. And so when Gaiman goes to try to destroy Oiwa's ghost, he ends up killing Ume. He also ends up killing her dad because of that same kind of haunting. So Yemen and his mom, Maki, escape from the city and head to a Buddhist temple. Meanwhile, Nausuke is with Oiwa's sister, Asode. They're also on the run. She finds um, Oiwa's comb in like the nearby swamp and confronts Nausuke. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, totally didn't help kill your sister. No. And Nausuke basically gets killed by Asode, but also... Or was apparition over top of a sode. Um, so he dies. Meanwhile, at the temple, Yemen confronts Maki basically for being the reason why he has any problems at all in life. Um, and he kills her in a rage. Again, this is compounded by the haunting. 
and the priest that's there at the temple tries to get a group of people to restrain Yemen to be like, stop murdering people. Um, but he, you know, is fully mad by this point and he dies in the fight with this, this group. And that's the end. So it's really interesting the way that you can see, like just with the three plot summaries you've given, like the same basic beats, but with, you know, characters and specifics getting remixed, as you said. Absolutely. Um, the same names pop up and they're just like placed to different people. Mm -hmm. Um, and what is particularly interesting is again, the emphasis, the 1949 movie we determined was not horror. 1956 we determined was absolutely horror. Um, both in the effects of the haunting, the, um, disfigurement of everyone. Um, and yeah, absolutely in the way that it was, focused on the horror rather than the tragedy of this story. (laughs) We did note that it was kind of like 50, 50 melodrama and horror, Mm -hmm. but once it slides into horror, it stays there and doesn't try to cushion the effect on the audience at all. For sure. If you want to hear more about the 1956 adaptation, that's episode 191. And like I said, we ranked it. It was considered horror, and it's ranked at number one fifty one uh, out of two hundred and forty five, which means it's it's like in the sixty percent range. So like that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. We particularly liked that Asode and Oiwa both get revenge in some sort of method, and. We noted that the Kabuki influence was back in here. It wasn't like full on Kabuki. But you could see it with like the makeup, the flair of the supernatural, like you could see the influences being brought back in here. Yeah. So, you know, there are certain like through lines to these characters, right? Like Yemen sucks yeah. and Nausuke's like a bastard, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But there's different emphases on like who exactly is the most responsible, you know, and, and how much is Yemen like pushed into doing what he's doing. Um, Cause I think in the original play, like Yemen just is terrible in the 1949 version. He is very much like a weak person who's caught in a difficult situation and is easily manipulated. And then in the 1956 version, he's like really just like pushed into everything by like his mom and now so different levels of like accountability for the murder and and all the other various crimes. And I bring that up because that's one of the major distinguishing factors of this version of Yatsia Kaiden. Mm. So this rendition of the film, as I mentioned earlier, is the first color adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden. It's the first widescreen Yatsia Kaiden. It was a major prestige production. Uh, coming from Daiei Films, which was one of the major studios of post-war Japan. Producer Masaichi Nagata founded Daiei as a merger of three previously existing studios in 1942. In 1950, Daiei produced Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon and entered that film in the Venice Film Festival, where it won the Golden Lion Award before winning the Best Foreign Film Award at the Academy Awards in 1952, uh, and kind of put Japanese film on the map. 
Tenosuke Kinagasa, who directed Page of Madness way back in the day, uh, directed the film Gate of Hell for Daiei in 1953, which would be the first Japanese film in color to be released internationally, and it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. So, like, Daiei was kind of a big deal in the 1950s. Um, they also produced the acclaimed films of director Kenji Mizuguchi, such as 1954's Sancho the Bailiff. This film was directed by Kenji Misumi, who was born in 1921 in Kyoto to a businessman and a geisha, and was raised by his aunt um, with financial support from his absent father. Uh, however, when he told his father that he wanted to make sword fighting movies instead of going <laughs> to business school, his father cut off all contact with him. Thanks to a recommendation from a novelist friend, he was able to gain employment at Nikatsu Studios in 1941 as a trainee assistant director. Uh, but then he was drafted into the war, uh, where he spent two and a half years as a Russian prisoner of war in Siberia. After that, he returned to Japan to find that Nikatsu had merged with two other studios to form Daiei Films. He began working for Daiei as an assistant director in 1948. As an assistant director, he worked on Gate of Hell and became friends with Tenosuke Kinugasa, who recommended to Daiei that they promote him to director. Misumi's first film was about a one-eyed, one-armed samurai, and from there he began pumping out about four films a year. That's not bad. By the end of the 1950s, he had risen considerably at Daiei, and in 1961, he directed the first 70mm Japanese film, Buddha. Daiei wanted to keep assigning like prestige films to Masumi, uh, but Masumi really just wanted to direct sword fighting movies. <laughs> Don't we all? From 1962 to 1970, uh, which was when Daiei went bankrupt, uh, Masumi directed six films in the Zatoichi series, starting with the first film, and then also the 8th, 12th, 17th, 19th, and 21st entries in the series. So he got his wish. Yeah. Uh, and then, beginning in 1972, he directed the first, second, third, and fifth films in the six-film Lone Wolf and Cub series, which is, like, way more violent than Zatoichi. Yeah. No, that's great. I'm glad he finally got to do like what he always wanted. Yeah. Um, Lone Wolf and Cub, by the way, starred Tomisaburu Wakayama, the older brother of Shintaru Katsu, who played Zatoichi. And we saw Wakayama as Yemen in the 1956 version of Yatsuya Kaiden. Kenji Masumi's final film was, appropriately enough, The Last Samurai in 1974. Writer Fuji Yahiro, who was known for Sancho the Bailiff and later Buddha in 1961, creates a version of Yatsuya Kaiden that veers far afield from the version of the story that most Japanese people would be familiar with in creating perhaps the most sympathetic portrayal of Yemen we have yet seen. The reason for this is most likely due to the actor chosen to portray the character, Kazuo Hasegawa. Born in 1908 in Kyoto to a sake-brewing family, Hasegawa first acted in a play at the age of five, and from there he became a kabuki performer being trained as an onagata, which oh. is a, you know, actor who plays female parts. Yeah. Um, in the 1920s, onagata sort of stopped being a thing due to, like, changing style in Japanese acting, 
1927, he made his film debut for Shochiku Studios under the name Chojiro Hayashi, where he became a major star in the period dramas of Tenosuke Kinugasa due to his good looks and graceful movements. In the next 10 years, he appeared in 120 films for Shochiku before moving to Toho in 1937. As a response to him switching studios, Shochiku sent armed thugs after him who slashed his face up with razor blades. What the fuck? He recovered and acted for Toho under his real name of Kazuo Hasegawa, sort of considering Chojiro Hayashi to be dead. He moved to Daie in 1950, where he starred in the popular Zenigata Heiji series, uh, where he plays like a policeman in Edo period Japan who solves like crimes and stuff. (laughs) Um, He also starred in the tale of Genji in 1951, gate of hell in 1953 story from Chikamatsu in 1954, uh, an adaptation of the 47 Ronin in 1958, which was written by Fuji Yahiro who wrote this version of Yatsuya Kaiden and his 300th film in 1963 was a remake of An Actor's Revenge, which he had appeared in for Shochiku way back in 1935 in the same role. He retired from acting shortly thereafter and passed away in 1984. Cool guy. So Hasegawa was a popular, respected, handsome leading man known for playing heroic roles. And so most Commentators supposed that the softening of Yemen's character in this film was done so as to not push Hasegawa too far from what audiences would expect of him. 27-year-old actress Yasuko Nakata uh, was romantically involved with Daie's president, Masaichi Nagata, when she was cast as Oiwa in this film. Uh, Nagata was 27 years older than her. After the two split in 1964, she retired from acting. She does not perform a dual role in this film. Ume is played by Yoko Uraji, and Asode is played by Mieko Kondo. This version of Yatsuya Kaiden was released by Daie on July 1st, 1959. It's traditional for Japanese horror films to come out in summer because the idea is they're supposed to send a chill down your spine uh, to (laughs) give you relief from the heat. Okay. Ten days later, Shochiku released a cheaper shorter, more garish, and more horror-centric adaptation of Yatsuya Kaiden uh, from director Nobuo Nakagawa. And that version, uh, which is called Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, uh, would become the definitive feature film version of the story. As a result, this version is often overlooked, um, and it's very, like, difficult to find. Yeah, well, same year, practically same title. Yeah. Um, so this forgotten status, plus its unique treatment of the Yemen character, has earned this version some praise in a, like, hipster cred? Oh, is this the Japanese-Spanish Dracula? Maybe. We'll find <laughs> out when we watch it. But yeah, there's sort of like a, like, oh, you know, Kenji Masumi's Yatsuya Kaiden is the one you should really watch kind of thing with this version. Um, but of course, we'll be checking out Nobuo Nakagawa's in our next episode. So we'll be able to very directly compare them. All right. Well, folks, uh, hopefully you can find a copy 
of this Yatsuwa Karen to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Yatsuwa Kaiden from 1959, directed by Kenji Misumi. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching Yatsuya Kaiden from 1959, directed by Kenji Misumi. Sarah, what did you think of this go-round? Man, this movie took way too long to do anything. Well, okay. This is, I think, one of the problems with using Yatsuya Kaiden as a basis for a horror movie, Mm. which is that like the setup can take a long time depending on what the director has chosen to take from the play because you've got to get all of these characters and motivations in the right spot for the crucial events to happen. This is too much to have to do. I think honestly that the script of this version is a pretty good simplification of the storyline and yet it still takes 55 minutes for us to get to the part where Oiwa's face gets fucked up in this 86 minute movie yeah yeah so three quarters of the movie yeah it's yeah let me give the plot and then we'll dive in so same basic setup with Yemen he's a ronin He's making umbrellas in poverty, and he's married to Oriwa. Um, now, they do have a servant named Kohei, who's been their servant for 24 years. The impression I got was that he was um, a servant in Oiwa's family, which in this version is the Tamiya family, which is like a higher rank family that Yemen married into. And then when that marriage happened, Kohei went like with... Oiwa to Yemen's household and now he's like stuck as their servant. Yeah, but he looks like he's like 25. You yes. Know? That's the problem. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, So we have Nosuke and two probably named buddies, but not in our version. Uh, they were um, given names in this version, but I don't remember one of them. It's Akiyama and S something like Sakuji or something like that. It doesn't really matter. I will be referring to them as the two buddies. Yeah. Nosuke and the two buddies are always getting into scrapes and having Yemen come save their butts with his sword skills. Now, Oriwa's uncle comes by and he's like, how's searching for a job, Yemen? And Yemen's <laughs> like, I gave up on that because it's shitty out there. <laughs> and Oriwa's uncle is like, nobody wants to work anymore. <laughs> Let me set up an interview between the prestigious Ito family and you. And you can bring this keg of sake as like, not a bribe, but just like a little gift. Yeah. To which uh, Yemen is practically laughed out of the Ito residence as a result. Um, So he's like off to a bar, drinking in solitude, feeling sorry for himself, when suddenly um, this like 
lovely young lady and her maid are like seeking refuge because they keep being chased and harassed by drunks. Now these drunks are like from like high-ranking families, so no one's going to stand up for them except for Yemen, the most like backbone stand-up person in this movie. Apparently, it's it's weird because he's standing up for them less because it's the right thing to do and more because it just kind of like spills into his room. Like it's a very um, man with no namey kind of like, well, now you've made it my problem kind of thing. Yeah. So anyways, he protects them. And uh, this woman, her name is Ume. She just falls madly in love with Yemen at this point. Turns out she's also the daughter of the Ito family, like his only daughter. Put a pin in that. We do have the Asode Narsuke subplot here, um, where Na- Narsuke's like, hey, Asode, want to get with a winner? And Asode's like, fuck you. Uh, and Narsuke needs to learn to take no for an answer. He never does. Asode's working at a tea house at the town over, but that's just kind of setting up where she's at for the rest of the movie. Okay, so Narsuke and the two buddies... Um, basically arrange for Yemen and Ume to meet. So, you know, Ume can kind of get to know him a little bit better. And then Ume goes to her dad and she's like, listen, I only want Yemen and I'm going to kill myself unless I get Yemen. Her dad's like, he's married. And she's like, I know. I said what I said. Exactly. So her dad and the two buds try to come up with a way to basically get Oiwa out of the picture while Naosuke and Ume's maid Omaki come up with a way to really get Oiwa out of the picture by uh, poisoning some medicine for her. Ito and the two buds come up with a plan for a basically adultery plot uh, where Kohei and Oiwa are actually getting nasty on the side, um, which isn't the truth until we cut to uh, Koei being like, Oiwa, I've always loved you. And her being like, fuck off. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's it's a pretty good frame up because it, you know, has that basis in truth. Yeah. Now, Yeman throughout all of this is kind of the worst husband. He's always like very neglectful of Oiwa, especially because she just had a miscarriage. And he's like, that's women's problems. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk to you about it. Um, he's always out going fishing, you know man things right he's he's just kind of a jerk he's just kind of a jerk and now he's uh, he's spending all of his time over at the ito residence because it's kind of like he's his job is like getting paid to play husband with ume except for having sex yeah i mean he's not having an affair he's just doing everything he's having an emotional affair he's he's doing everything but have an affair sure yeah now, throughout all of this, Oiwa is sick because of the miscarriage, um, and she needs some special herb, but it's super expensive. So Koei, after, you know, professing his love, whatever, basically takes uh, Oiwa's fancy comb that she got as a gift from Yemen um, and runs off to sell it to get money to buy the medicine. That's when he is confronted by the two buds who beat him up and then take him over to Yemen and tell Gaiman about Koei being in love with Oiwa and Gaiman's like fuck this guy and so they kill him specifically one of the two buddies kills him yes um now Gaiman has been out fishing Nausuke went to um Oiwa to give medicine 
that she thinks is this like fancy medicine that's going to cure all her troubles, but it's actually the poison. She takes it and she gets disfigured on her face. It starts out as kind of a bruise, like a really bad black eye that kind of spreads to her temple. Um, but as it kind of progresses, uh, she does lose her hair. It does kind of get bumpy on that side. The classic Oriwa Yatsua Kaiden look. Yeah, I feel like the section of the story from when like Takuetsu the Masur shows up at her place to whenever someone else discovers that she looks terrible is really the same in every adaptation, which like shows how key that scene is like with her uh, looking in the mirror and combing her hair and, and all of that stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, Oriwa, everyone, when they see her, um, the translation of the uh, the subtitles from Hungarian to English translates everyone's reaction to do not approach. Yeah. As she comes closer. But Oriwa does have a tumble with um, one of the two buds who comes over to kind of be like, and eh, no one's going to want you now, um, which leads to a sword being stuck in the wall, which comes in handy when uh, Yemen comes in and goes, holy shit, Oriwa. And um, he goes to confront her about the affair, freaks out over her appearance and then in their struggle, Oriwa falls on the sword and basically cuts her throat. Now, Nasuke and the two buds are like, hey, Yemen, everything's great now. You can just be with Ume. And Yemen's like kind of shaken up by this, but just kind of like is in a daze, I guess in shock, you mm-hmm. could say, as he heads back over to the Ito residence. Before they get there, it turns out that someone looking for Yemen appears and asks to uh, be entered into the Ito residence. Turns out this mysterious figure is the ghost of Oriwa, and so begins the haunting. We have the classic uh, ghost of Oriwa appearing where someone is, and so when someone slashes out, it ends up killing or hurting someone else, as is the case for Ume. Um, She doesn't get killed, but she definitely gets slashed a bit. After slashing Ume, Yemen runs off to a Buddhist temple where he is haunted. And at this point, I have to just put a little asterisk here of like, when Oriwa was dying, she's like, no, Yemen would never do anything bad to me. It must be the Ito family. Curse the Ito family. And now she's haunting Yemen. That doesn't make sense in terms of what they are trying to do here with Yemen not having any fault at all. Yeah, I mean, Akiyama, who's one of the two buddies when he's like comes over to be like ah and leaves his sword there um he tries to like pin it on yemen like he's like yeah it was your husband who did all of this which is like he doesn't really have a motivation for doing that other than so that ghost oiwa has a reason to haunt yemen at first but ultimately i think what's happening here is that ghost oiwa is haunting yemen so that yemen will become will feel guilty enough to become like the instrument of her revenge against the Ito family. Which is what happens. Um, He takes his sword and he goes to the Ito residence. Um, Now, by this point, you know, Ume's recovering from her injuries. Omaki, her nurse, uh, gets um, got by one of the two buds thinking he sees Oiwa. And so Yemen goes and... um, Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself because Asoda still has a part to play in this movie. 
Um, Asode calls over Nausuke because she's figured out, like, oh, my sister's dead, something's gone wrong. And she tricks Nausuke into confessing about what happened while Gaiman is outside her house. And so Gaiman confronts Nausuke like, you bastard. Nausuke tries to escape and ends up accidentally getting impaled on bamboo. Gross. Um, then Gaiman goes to the Ito family and, uh, slashes up the two buds, slashes up, uh, Father Ito, and then he runs off to go back to the Buddhist temple where he dies of his injuries in front of the Buddhist statue and a golden light descends upon him as Oiwa's fancy kimono also descends and therefore happy ending for the two dead lovers. Yeah. Gaiman dies of like running time disease. Like he does, he dies of end of the movieitis. Yeah, from yeah. his injuries. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I will say that once the poison takes full effect, effects are good. But I was disappointed when Orwa's face first appears and it's just bruising. Yet everyone is reacting to it like it's the full Orwa look. Sure, yeah. There's a lot of people, like, reacting to this big bruise on her face as if she's, like, really hideous. Um, And for the most part, the really hideous Oiwa really happens when she's a ghost, like, after she's dead. It's weird to me that, like, over the years, with the various simplifications that the story has gotten, that Oiwa's disfigurement has been simplified to the point where it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, where, you know, she has to have the bump, she has to have the lack of hair in that area, but how that equates to or results from the poison or in that other one from the boiling water. Yeah, like in the play, it's that the Itos give her a gift of a face cream that is toxic. So it's like, cool, that'll mess your face up. In the 1949 version, uh, it's like, yeah, her face gets burned by boiling water And then later she's given poison in the guise of medicine and that's what kills her. And then in like the 1956 version, it was just the poison in the guise of medicine, which is what we get here. And it's just like, so wait, why does the poison bruise her face? I can kind of get like her hair falling out maybe, but yeah, it's, we, we, I think we talked about this a little bit in the discussion of the 1956 version about like wanting to simplify things but still being like so married to the like iconic elements of the story that you can't change to the point where some of those iconic elements don't really make sense anymore. It's Baudrillard's curse. Baudrillard? Uh, Jean Baudrillard is a French sociologist. And I think the best kind of example for like what he was about is like, the distancing from like the symbol and its meaning. Mm. So pumpkin spice, you have a physical pumpkin, mm, pumpkin, and then it gets turned into um, pumpkin spice latte. Uh, so, you know, a, a step removed from the original physical pumpkin, the right. signifier, right? And then it gets further removed to like, I don't know, um, like a pumpkin spiced flavored milk you pour into your coffee where there's no pumpkin there's no spice it's all just a simulation of that original thing right so no connection to the actual 
pumpkin itself. Yeah. So that that's what I mean when I say Baudrillard's curse. Got it. Yeah. To the point where like we're so far away from some of these things that we don't seem to remember why they're here. Yeah. Yeah. But I do agree that once she's dead and a ghost, I actually really like this version's take on her melty face. And even though it takes a while for the horror to kick in in this movie, I do think the last 30 minutes of this movie uh, do have some really cool horror visuals uh, backed up by a very creepy score. Yeah, her kimono is put into like a bucket of water and her hand like creepily comes out and it's like super pale and gross looking and is like bothering the masseuse. (laughs) So I, I would agree that there is some good imagery here, but 30 minutes is very very generous it is 20 minutes well isn't the movie 86 minutes long 55 to 86 is 30 right yeah no it's after the hour mark okay well regardless i i think that the movie manages to kick it into high gear once we get into the haunting section even though it takes a long time to get there the 1956 movie had a similar problem although i think it made it to the horror stuff earlier in the runtime but the color cinematography and the widescreen lets this movie like pull off some really cool visuals one of the other scares i really like is when yemen's fishing and like the swamp weeds kind of like entangle him and trying to pull free he ends up like pulling up the door that um oiwa and kohei's bodies are nailed to which is another thing from the play. Yeah, it's an it's another key aspect of the story, but we, we don't actually in this version see them get nailed to the door and put downstream. That just kind of gets mentioned as an offhand aside, um, but it comes back in that haunting. Yeah, I will say that as far as adaptation of the play goes, this, even with its like bending over backwards for Yemen to not be at fault, I think it's a fairly good adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though that the bending over backwards for Yemen, it really pushes it so far that it affects your like suspension of disbelief. Sure, you a know? little bit. It's kind of like, oh yeah, how could Yemen ever have anything bad to do? Yeah, I I think um, I turned to you at one point during the movie and said that this sounded like the version of the story that Yemen would give as like testimony at his trial where it's like, he's not disputing any of the core facts. It's just that nothing happens to actually be his fault. Right. Yeah. Um, so we have like, he doesn't kill Oiwa in any way. Like Nausuke delivers the poison. Akayama leaves his sword blade behind for her to fall onto. Um, he doesn't kill Kohei, uh, one of the two buds. I think it's Akayama again does that. He, like, the worst thing... He, he doesn't even kill Ome. No, he, like, he maims her, thinking it's Oiwa. And then it's, like, one of the two buds again who comes in and, like, sees Oiwa instead of Omaki and, like, slashes at her. Um, there's a just, like, so much where it's not technically Yemen's fault and then when he does have agency we're on his side because he's taking revenge for Oiwa and like announces so yeah the first time he ever actually makes a choice in the movie really is to go after the people who are responsible for you know Oiwa's death and all of this now that's not to say that like this version of Yemen is like a good guy um he's still definitely like a jerk um it's just that like he's not even 
part of the plan. Like it's not even how it is in some of the adaptations where like in some of them Nowski has to kind of twist his arm to go along with the like kill Oiwa, marry Ume plan. And maybe Yemen makes Nowski do all the dirty work. Like here he's not really even he's aware. He's just one of the chess pieces being moved about. Exactly. Um, everyone's scheming around him and kind of pushing him into stuff that he doesn't want to do. Like ultimately his problem here is that he's a jerk with bad friends and he's too proud to like accept help. Mm-hmm. which puts him into this precarious position. I will say, however, that what I like about softening Yeaman's character in this way is that I think it's an interesting twist on the story um, to give us an ending where Oi was haunting, like leads to him purposefully becoming the instrument of her revenge uh, instead of just doing it accidentally. And, you know... I, it leads us to this ending that sort of is about reconciliation and forgiveness where like he fights for her and dies. And then we get this imagery that suggests that like her spirit has forgiven him. Yeah. And that like everything's going to work out in heaven and whatnot. And I think that's like a decent ending to this story. Yeah, I would agree. I do think it's funny that like the way that this version of the story has been designed, like, Yemen goes over to the Ito residence. People are getting stabbed and slashed and haunted by ghosts uh, left, right, and center. I really like, as an aside, how this movie does, like, the effects for, like, flaming flying light. Yeah. Those were well done. But we basically end up with a situation where all of uh, the Ito, like, samurai retainers all, like, attack Yemen so that we get that, like, classic chambara uh, sword fighting movie ending of like the hero surrounded by a bunch of nameless mooks like slashing people up which just is really funny when you know this director goes on to like create the Zatoichi series the sword choreography sucks though I will just say it uh it feels so slow it feels so slow <laughs> compared to Zatoichi yeah absolutely I mean this is definitely a very you know primitive stage of the filmmaking that's going to get us those classic samurai movies later. So I feel like we're ready to move on to ranking, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to ask you, I wasn't sure if this movie is trying to be horror because it's emphasis was so much on like, are we doing a good adaptation? Are we hitting all the points of Mm. like the comb and the kimono and all this and the haunting happening three quarters into the movie like is it trying to be horror or is it just trying to be a haunted drama so i i'm willing to say this is horror and the reason why is i think because once the haunting actually starts kenji masumi is doing a lot of really creative horror movie stuff a lot of creative use of moving camera a lot of really neat creative ways for oiwa to pop up you know, people are getting like pulled by invisible forces. It's honestly some of the best horror content we've seen in Yatsia Kaiden so far because the movie's doing more than just have Oiwa like pop up for a couple of frames for a jump scare or be superimposed over someone else moments before that person is slashed by a sword. Like there's other stuff happening here, other kinds of haunting. Um, I really like the scene with her and... Yemen in the Buddhist temple. Um, I really like just the way the camera 
moves around her when she's a ghost and the way she's lit. Like, I think there's a focus on the spooks and the scares in that last quarter of the movie that I think makes it applicable to say that this is horror. Um, I also feel like the thing I noticed, and maybe it's because this is the first one we've seen of these in color, but I really noticed the blood throughout this version. So the title comes up and it's dripping with blood. And then we don't see blood again until Kohei is gripping the comb so tightly that it's like cutting into his hand. And I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I wanted to mention that, you know, it's not afraid of showing red for blood, but it doesn't use color beyond that. Yeah, the color is just sort of here. Yeah. Oiwa's traditional appearance is a very kind of like black and white appearance, quite honestly. It's here, and particularly the blood is here because of horror of Dracula. But, like, so it's like, okay, cool, you've you've checked off that box, but they aren't going like, oh, well, what can we do with the color then? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think the color is being used poorly, but it's it's certainly like they're not trying to do anything special with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did notice blood all throughout this movie once we get into the spooky parts, uh, once we're past the setup. So where were you looking to rank? So I have a feeling that I liked this movie a lot more than you did, um, just kind of judging from the vibes I'm getting. Um, but obviously, I started by looking at where the 1956 version of Yatsia Kaiden is sitting on the list. Um, that's down at 151. I liked this better than that. They're both pretty standard adaptations of Yatsia Kaiden, in my opinion. Obviously, this one has the sympathetic Yemen as like a distinguishing factor, but I think that like the color and widescreen cinematography gives this one an edge. Um, so if I had a choice of which two to watch, I think I'd go with this one. The question is, how much better is it? Um, And where I'm looking is between about 85 and 95, uh, to be honest with you. That kind of range. I I honestly am not sure if this is better than like Student of Prague from 1926 or The Black Room from 1935, which I think hit these kind of like, I did a bad thing and now I'm haunted kind of vibes a lot better. But I... I could probably go for this over watching The Bad Seed again. The Bad Seed is a classic, but it's very over the top. So I don't know. What were you thinking? Um, so you are right. I was looking lower, um, particularly because we actually get to the horror faster in the 56 Gatsuwa Kaiden. So I was looking down. I settled around 216, three cases of murder as my ceiling. And then um, kind of looking down, I stopped at 224, Frankenstein's daughter, because it's definitely more competent than that. And the reason I particularly was drawn to three cases of murder is the balance of how much, or like percentage, I'll say, of how much this movie is horror versus not horror. Wow, you're looking way lower than me then. Um, Like, I get what you're trying to say, and I get that, like, it's tough to wait that long for the horror, particularly if it's, like, the end of a long day and you're tired and you kind of just want to get the movie over with. 
I will say, like, this movie knows that we know the the story. Yes. And so, like, it does a thing, like, the masseuse is offering the medicine, the poisoned medicine to Oiwa, and then he's like, oh, no, hold on, hold on, let me blow on it first. Yes. And, of course, in COVID era, I'm like, don't touch my tea. Why are you blowing <laughs> on it? All your germs are on it now. But it's it's trying to, like, edge you closer and closer, and I'm just like... I I, fu- I know it's going to happen. It's fucking just fucking do it. It we're past an hour. Why <laughs> see, is she not dead yet? See, I feel like you can have a sustained buildup playing on you know that audience expectation, and then like use that as a big point of release. But it all comes down to like how good is the stuff once the haunting begins, and like does it deserve that sustained buildup. I really liked this movie once it started to get to horror. And I think that aside from looking at like a percentage game of like how many minutes are there ghosts on screen kind of with a stopwatch and a notebook. Listen, I'm in the cinema (laughs) sense camp of movie analysis. Apparently Um, this movie is not as uh, timid about horror as three cases of murder. Like it's taking a long time to set everything up and maybe it's longer than it needs to. But like, if this was three cases of murder, this movie would have had like, Oi would die off screen. And then like, I don't know, Yemen would walk down a dark hall and get a shiver and say, Oh, maybe there was a ghost over there. Perhaps. I don't know. And then that would be the end of the movie. Like three cases of murder was embarrassed to have anything that might possibly spook a person in it. Whereas Kenji Masumi like is trying to do a haunting here. That's fair. My range was under the black room at 90, um, but above, gosh, what even was the thing that couldn't die? It was the thing that couldn't die, Ben. Uh, no, I think that was uh, the dude who was buried on the, that ranch and like the, the girl had like the vibes by the tree. Mm, mm, okay, yeah. So I, I think between 90 and 95 is where I'm looking. Okay, so looking below that, Half Human is at 97. And I will at least admit that Gatsuwa Kaiden from 1959 has more horror in it, um, like visceral, in-your-face, on-your-face horror um then half human oh no your face do not approach <laughs> do not approach i could go i think below quatermass 2 and above the thing that couldn't die okay we'll make the case it's it's mostly just that like i think well i was going to say that i think this is just a better made movie which should earn it some points but you are right that the fight choreography is pretty janky like, it's just the camera's set up, some guys bump into each other in front of it. And not to seem like I'm pulling a weird card, but I was looking at 216 to 224. Yeah. No, totally, totally, uh, totally fair. Yeah, you're, you're like agreeing to be way up here with me, which is, you know, huge. Uh, this is why you wait too, so long for us to record, isn't it? So I'm dead tired when we get to ranking. <laughs> And then I just go with whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I really don't mean for it to seem that way. I'm just, I'm just ribbing you. 
Yeah, okay, let's go with where you had suggested then. So below Night of the Blood Beast, above Half Human? Yeah. Okay, so that puts this at number 97, Yatsia Kaiden from 1959, directed by Kenji Masumi. Now, next week, we're looking at another Yatsia Kaiden that we can compare to this. Yeah. Uh, the most famous Yatsia Kaiden. Gosh, I hope it goes above this. Yes, I hope so too. Uh, hopefully we can find more to like agree on with that one. Folks, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by telling your friends about us. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Our patrons get access to all kinds of really cool bonus content during October in the lead up to Halloween. So head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and sign up to see all of those goodies. Uh, well, I mean, I guess you've already said what we're watching next week. That's true. For those of you wondering what the Tokaido means in Tokaido Yatsia Kaiden. Um, I believe Tokaido is just the region that Yatsia is located in. So instead of the title of the movie being Ghost Story of Yatsia, it's Ghost Story of Yatsia in Tokaido, just so we know what that distinction means. But yes, next week we're watching Tokaido Yatsia Kaiden, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.